0: Design Matters will be back next week with new episodes. In the meantime, we wanted to replay Debbie's interview from 2019 with Lisa Taddeo.
1: You know, what she said to me was, hey, you know what? So, yeah, he likes to watch me have sex with other people, but he does a lot for me. And like, so what, you know, and it makes her feel weird. But if she at any point said, I don't want to do this anymore, he wouldn't leave her or get angry because part of her likes it, too.
0: (music) This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Debbie talks with writer Lisa Taddeo about sex and desire.
1: That's how sex differs from desire. With desire, you're kind of, you fall in love with yourself in a way as opposed to just having this physical feeling.
2: Here's Debbie. Lisa Taddeo, a two-time Pushcart Prize-winning author, wanted to write a book about desire, but quickly decided she didn't want to write about men's desires. Instead, she wanted to write solely about women's desires, and she ended up focusing on three women. She spent countless hours with them. She even moved into their towns where she took in the scenery and the smells and the sounds of their intimate lives. About a decade later, she came out with her book titled simply Three Women. It has gotten a lot of attention, topped the New York Times bestseller list, has started many conversations about female desire, some of which we're going to talk about today. Lisa Taddeo, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. Lisa, I understand you hate going to the beach. I do. (laughs) Why is that? I feel like it's very
1: sandy. I just, I like when water is super warm and still, like a bath, and most oceans aren't like that. So yeah, I just
2: prefer a pool. I don't like sand either, and I also (laughs) like to be able to see the bottom. Yes. (laughs) I I feel somehow... um, unprotected when it's just this limitless black pool. Um, (laughs) But I I actually thought you were going to tell us that the reason that you didn't like going to the beach was because of what happened when you went to a Puerto Rico beach with your parents when you were a little girl.
1: It's left a mark in different ways. Do you Um, want to share that story? Sure. When I was about 11, my friend and I were supposed to go to Florida with her family, and my parents decided somewhat at the last minute that they didn't want me to go. And I was, uh, as 11-year-olds tend to be, um, I didn't exactly take it well. And... So they said, let's go to Puerto Rico. And while we were there, we were on the beach, and my parents were very—they were helicopter parents before that was a thing. And they didn't let me do anything, so I was like, can I take a walk on the beach? And they finally said, sure. So I took a walk on the beach. I took my um, copy of Stephen King's The Stand, because I've always been a rather depressive individual, (laughs) even at 11. Um, And I I fell asleep on on the beach, slathered in, like, baby oil, because I wanted to get a tamp. And I woke up to a man probably in his 40s or so licking, like, my shoulder, neck area. And, you know, I was definitely frightened. But what was weirder about my reaction was that I didn't really—I didn't freak out. I didn't, like, want—I don't know if the word upset him is correct, but I don't know. I don't know how to—I just know that it was not something I handled with—you know, I didn't scream and run— I felt like it was the right thing to just kind of move away slowly. like. Um, and so I went back to my parents, and I didn't tell them. And that night I had this terrible sunburn. It was like a second degree. Like I had blisters. And I just felt guilty about the sunburn and guilty about what had happened with the man, as though my falling asleep on a beach wearing a bikini you know, um, was my fault. Mm. So... So, yeah, so that was. So, no, I don't hate beaches because of that.
2: But you could.
1: I mean, that would be a good enough reason. (laughs) (laughs) It's true.
2: Your dad grew up in New Jersey Mm -hmm. and went to medical school in Bologna, Italy. Mm -hmm. While there, he met your mom, who was a fruit stand cashier. Is it true your dad serenaded your mom outside her window with an old radio? How did you know that? Yes, it, it very, is very, very. Say anything. I sort of have that John Cusack, uh, yeah, like yeah, in you your know, eyes thing. That's
1: how I picture it too. I don't. Ex- I know that he did that. I don't. I don't know if it was above his head. Um, yeah, it was very. Um, I always think that's so. You know, it's very incredibly romantic, and yeah, I've thought about that a lot.
2: Your parents love to read. I know that before you learn to read, you tell stories with your dad's Stephen King books to a rapt audience of stuffed animals. Mm-hmm. That's I, I can really see that. It's so vivid. <laughs> um, and so you made up your own stories. Yes. And, and not only my own stories, but
1: because I'm so, like, neurotic and Capricorn-y, for every word there was on – The John Grisham page or the Stephen King page or whatever my father was reading, I would put one of my own words. So if it was and, I would try to find like a short word because I didn't know how to read. Yeah. And my stuffed animals didn't, they didn't care if it was exact, but I did.
2: I love how creative that is. (laughs) Did you take a liking to writing early? Was that something that you identified as a talent or an aspiration when you were very young? I mean, it was definitely something I've always,
1: from as long as I can remember. I, I was writing poetry too. It was terrible, obviously, but
2: no, it wasn't. You won an award. <laughs> I did. You won an award I when did. you were eleven or twelve. Yeah. Um, you won a thousand dollar grand prize from the <laughs> National Library of Poetry. I did. And you think it was a bad poem? It was. What was the poem about? And can you recite any part of it for us? I I can't. I can remember it. I can remember (laughs) the first line.
1: um, What was the first line? I I can't. I can't. can't? There was the word ringmaster was in it. Something about a ringmaster taming the wind. And I can't. I can't even. Like I just get so like squeamish even thinking about it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) A couple of years later, you banged out a three hundred and fifty-page novel on a typewriter about a group of conservationists. high schoolers in the Congo and you said that you were a depressed kid and writing about a world you could only dream of and research in an encyclopedia and that's what made you happy. Yeah. So were you depressed? Were you, were you a sad child?
1: I had a happy family life but my mom was depressed and not like in a sort of traditional way. She wasn't like sitting in bed and not getting up. But she would say in a very Italian way, I'm just, I'm so depressed. <laughs> it didn't really, it wasn't like I saw it outwardly. But I, I just, I took in a lot of that. I think there's a lot of like, I don't know, it's an Italian sort of, there's a lot of Elena Ferrante stuff like that. There's a sort of like deep, you just feel all these things deeply when you have a mom who talks to you. She talked to me like I was 40 years old.
2: You write about her so vividly in Three Women that I almost feel like I could see her and I envision her as a Sophia Loren type. She d- she did
1: look like, almost exactly. I mean, there's a picture of her in Elle magazine because I wrote a brief essay about her two years ago or so, and um, there's a picture in there, and it's like all of her younger pictures with, like, the big curly brown hair, and, like, she's, yes,
2: quite much like that. You went to... New York University to study dramatic writing and ultimately transferred to Rutgers in Mm -hmm. New Jersey. Why Rutgers?
1: My um, ex-boyfriend was there. My parents would not let me go to see him. Like, they kept track of me. Um, They really were helicopters. Oh, yeah. It was wild. (laughs) You know, I also, in, in NYU, I felt very, it was a little too much for me at first. I was living Washington Square Park. It was kind of a dream. I had almost a full scholarship. The fact that I transferred to Rutgers with my parents were then sort of paying money for me to go to
2: school. I'm surprised they let you.
1: Well, I told them that um, they didn't have the classes I wanted at NYU. Meanwhile, I was in a seven-person Virginia Woolf class. I mean, that I, I think about it at least once a week. It's, it's, very, it's absolutely haunting that I did that.
2: What career were you envisioning for yourself at that time? Were you thinking that you wanted to be a writer?
1: I'd always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be a novelist. I actually truly like short stories um, above everything. What I always envisioned myself doing was writing short stories in rural England, like the Cotswolds or something less touristy, and working at Bath University and teaching short stories.
2: So sort of very Jane Austen, Virginia Woolf. Yes, and then yet transferring to... So, you know, there's a complexity there. <laughs> <laughs> um, your father, Peter, was killed in a car accident in 2003 when you were in your early 20s. And I understand that at that time, you did have uh, dreams to be a writer, but everything ended up taking a backseat to your grieving. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you manage to recover? <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, I mean, I don't know.
1: It took a—it was very brutal for a long time, for over— I mean, it's still brutal, but it's changed. You know, they tell—they it. say it uh, it does change. Um, It was about two years where I, like, was kind of able to, like, live in any kind of normal way again, and then my mom got sick. So it was kind (laughs) of—it was kind of—I couldn't really— once I kind of felt, like, somewhat normal again, I then— had to do that. So, um, and my dog, and my grandparents, oh, and my God. aunt and uncle. Yeah, my twenties were kind oh, of. my God. Yes, uh, yes.
2: <laughs> and you're still standing. Yeah. No, I. I know. It's weird. <laughs> oh. You You eventually got an entry level editorial job at Golf Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that come about? Are you a golfer? No. No, and I'm still. That was not. a fast no. <laughs>
1: Um, I met someone I was like emailing people editors at different places and saying because I wanted to be an editorial assistant I didn't think to get an MFA until two years ago (laughs) I was the oldest person in my class Um, but yeah I, I just I didn't know the right path so I knew I thought editing would be a good way to kind of get into the world and I emailed a few people and someone introduced me to someone who told me that this job had opened up. So, I mean, I said I didn't know anything about golf, but that I was willing to learn, and I was. Um, So that's how it worked.
2: You were freelancing at the same time, and David Granger, Esquire's former long-term editor, has said the following about you. I met Lisa after I got a call from a friend who she'd worked for. I had breakfast with her and started looking for ways to work with her. When Heath Ledger died in 2008, I was baffled by the outpouring of emotion. I called Lisa and asked her to report as much as she could on it in a week. Five days later, I had the first draft of a story, and I thought it was good, but it just wasn't there. One of my editors called her and told her we couldn't use it. The next morning... Eight hours later, we had a completely rewritten story in our inboxes. It was in first person, and we called it reported fiction. It was both funny and profound, and we published it. What
1: made you decide to do that? I had always wanted to be an Esquire. I'd always wanted to write fiction in Esquire. There was a number of magazines that I had, and that was one of them. And I just want to keep checking them off until I get them all. Um, But with that in particular, my father had passed away recently. And I needed something, you know, like I knew I needed something in order to kind of get by. And I got that call and I was crushed. And, you know, they were like, maybe we can run it online. And I was like, back then online was not, you know, it just wasn't what it is now. And I was crushed. And I said, okay. And I hung up and um, I cried for about two hours and I smoked about 50 cigarettes with my mother like across the table just crying and she was like you know what do you care of this short story? I don't get it. like she, they never understood what short stories were like why would you read them why would you write them and then I went to my computer and I just like wrote something and I sent it to them at like 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning and I said you know and I meant this I was just like you guys don't even have to read this I just wanted to do it if you want to read it Read it, And then, like, two hours later, I got the call saying they loved it. And it was just—it was one of the, you know, happiest— for someone who's never happy, it was a happy experience.
2: (laughs) Why are you never happy, Lisa? I
1: am just incredibly anxious.
2: But that's different than unhappy.
1: Yes, I'm not unhappy. I'm just scared all the time, so I can't live in the moment. So I'm happy in retrospect.
2: What are you scared of?
1: Well, after a sort of, you know, dad car accident, mom cancer— Everything else in the world, I just constantly think of all of those things on a probably minute-by-minute minute basis. And PTSD. So, loss. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Loss
2: and abandonment. And disease and accident. <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting how, how death gives you a perspective mm-hmm. of vulnerability unlike anything else. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same way, too. My, my surrogate mother uh, just died of pancreatic cancer, and now I'm really afraid that I'm dying of cancer. I don't know if it's survivor's guilt or if it's just something that means, you know, I'm insane. But I've been struggling with that, too. Um, The story that you wrote about Heath Ledger, I hadn't read it at the time. I read it in preparation for our interview today. It was mesmerizing. It's unlike anything I've ever written. I think it's one of the best things you've written along with the book. I was completely taken by its originality. And prior to reading it, I had never actually heard the term reported fiction. Was that something that was around? Did you just create that genre?
1: What happened, it was really David Granger who said, report on this for a week and then whatever facts you don't have, like how what he actually did you know, at the time that he died, then just fill it in with your imagination.
2: What was different about what you originally sent them and what eventually was printed?
1: The first one was multi-voices. Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen were talking. It was just, there was a lot going on. I thought it was experimental and cool, but ultimately it didn't have, like, a pulse. And I, I didn't know that when I handed it. It's like the kind of thing, like, you always know, or at least, you know, when an editor comes back to me and says... Basically, you can do better and not in so many words, although I have heard that it's in those many words. You go, okay, you're right, I can. Um, So I knew it. When I got it back, I was
2: like, yeah, that's wrong. How would you describe that piece for somebody that hadn't read it? One of the best things David Granger
1: said, which I've—literally, it's something I keep in mind every time I write. He said, you know— it should be funny, it should be X, it should be Y, but because this is a human life that we're talking about, it should above all be beautiful. And that has been in the back of my head about everything I write, not in terms of beautifully written, but in terms of having real respect for the person that you're writing about, even if it's fiction. So I would say that I would describe it as being kind of like wanting to both honor someone's demise while at the same time being as honest as possible about what might have happened. Because I think I think honesty is so important across desire, across grief. It's We kind of button a lot of things up because we're afraid. So I'm afraid of a million things, but I'm not afraid of talking about things.
2: <laughs> you mentioned your mom being diagnosed with cancer right after your father died. One of the last things your mother told you before she passed away was, don't let them see you happy. I can't stop thinking about that. I think we're much more used to hearing things like, don't let the bastards Mm -hmm. get you down. Mm -hmm. She then went on to say, if they see you are happy, they will try to destroy you. Mm -hmm. What did you make of that?
1: Uh, To be perfectly honest, I spoke to hundreds of people. For this book in specific, I spoke to women about desire and about why they didn't talk about it. And there's a quote by a female author that's like, a woman who is unhappy cannot truly be happy for another woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's a lot of truth to that and what I saw from people, and it's very quiet, and it's not something that you can see. I think it's a lot more so 30s and up. I think that younger people, they don't have that as much, especially these younger people. And like right now, I think that there's a lot more openness because we're just, they're growing up in this culture where there's, there's a, it's okay to be gay. It's okay to be transgender. There's just so much openness that most people, you know, people older than that didn't really have. But what I saw with, women in their thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, there's a lot of why does she think she deserves that? Like I mean, I there's plenty of friends of mine. I have a friend who left her husband and started dating her personal trainer. And there were women who said, why does she get, you know, she had enough. There's always that she had enough. And it's like, well, it's none of your business if she wanted more, as long as the personal trainer wasn't your husband, you know, it's it, but there's always that. I've heard that from so many people about so many different things. And Lena, the...
2: I was going to say, yeah. I have the quote right here. Some of the women expressed frustration that Lena had a home, a husband who provided for her and healthy children. They were angry that she wanted more. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess this is a good time for us to go right into the book. <laughs> but I love that line, and I felt that line both as Lena and as the person looking at Alina, Mm -hmm. especially when you don't feel good enough about yourself and then you get jealous that somebody Mm -hmm. else has more somehow. Mm -hmm. Your book, Three Women, has come out. It has created a, a tsunami of conversations and debates and analysis. Can you share with us how a New York Magazine profile of Rachel Yucatel essentially led to this book?
1: I was supposed to write about Tiger Woods, and the alleged affair he had with Rachel Yucatel, who was ambassador of the bottle girl industry, which that they bring the bottles of expensive champagne and vodka to the tables where people are paying $10,000 and up to sit at. And I found the women surrounding Rachel Yucatel and what she had been before she became sort of promoted to you know like an ambassador as opposed to one of the bottle girls i found them so interesting cuz they weren't prostituting themselves but but they were they were going to miami and they were going to cabo they were going to different places with these the men that they that they served at night and they would get fancy shoes and they would get cool dresses and handbags and they didn't have to have sex with the men, but they did have to sort of, and it wasn't even like a, the girlfriend experience. It was more like, I'm going to take 10 women out on my boat, and, and if you're 23 and someone's like, hey, come to Miami, it's like,
2: all right. Sounds like the fire Fest. Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, so I started talking to them. I became, so I, I kind of embedded myself with those women, and I wrote this story that was predominantly about them, and Rachel, you can tell, and Tiger were sort of this underlying part of it, and... This editor, uh, he was at Grove at the time, and now he's got his own imprint, Simon & Schuster, called Avid Reader, and Jofi Ferrari Adler. And um, he took me out to lunch, and he said he wanted me to write a book. And he kind of said, you can write about anything you want. So he sent me a number of nonfiction books that he admired, um, Joan Didion essays, Janet Malcolm, um, Tracy Kidder, Tom Wolfe, and Gay Talise as Thy Neighbor's Wife. And I read all of them, and reading Thy Neighbor's Wife, which is about sexual desire, he spent about a decade researching desire in the country, and he embedded himself in a swingers' colony in California. He operated in a massage parlor that gave happy endings, and he participated in all these acts to better write about them. And while I very much admired that, sort of immersion, I did feel like it was a little bit too much. And I also thought, you know, it's great, but I thought it was written from such a male perspective. And I wondered what a tale of desire would look like told from a female one. And so that was kind of my starting point. um, And I kind of floated that idea. And Jofi really liked it.
2: And that's kind of where it began. It was very... Very floaty at the time. (laughs) Is it true that Gaetely suggested that you sleep with married men for research? Yes, it is. Oh, my goodness. I know. I was a little bit shocked and hoped that wasn't true. No, it's true. What did you think of that? Well, I hadn't
1: read his books, but I had read Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, which is one of the most famous magazine stories. It's one of the best. It's beautiful. He couldn't essentially talk to Sinatra, so he just spent a month longer following him around from afar, talking to the person who brought his toupee around, etc. And I just admired it. So I admired him. I thought he was an excellent reporter. I didn't consider myself a reporter that much. I had done the same sort of thing just because it kind of made sense to me. But I didn't—I felt like he was the consummate reporter. So when he said that to me, I felt like, I'm not going to do that, but is that— is that what a reporter would do? That's literally how I felt. I didn't have the sort of—I didn't go, oh, my God, what is he talking— I didn't—that wasn't my first—it was like, I'm not going to do this, but but somebody else should. That was kind of the feeling I had. And then I thought a lot about that part in Mallrats, I don't know mm-hmm. if you— where the young woman is, like, being intimate with men while taking notes on them. And so that's what I pictured. And I'm like, well, that's already been done anyway.
2: <laughs> so. Right. You— said that desire is one of the things we think about the most and it's also our biggest secret. Mm-hmm. How do you define desire? I-,
1: I was writing about sex to start and I very quickly got bored. I went to Why? The... Why? Because you know it's like real sex episode you, if you watch one you're like oh that's cool. You know if you watch a marathon you're like after like the 10th one you're like all right like you just feel a little bit Whatever, um, so I went one of the first things I did was to go to the porn Castle in San Francisco, which is no longer much like the National Library of Poetry is no longer um, there, and great bastions of our time. <laughs> so I, I watched a lot of things there. I spent a good deal of time watching women having sex with machines there was an enema room there were lots of things that were interesting the main thing i was doing was profiling this young woman who was i think 19 um and she was having sex with men on camera and her girlfriend was the director her girlfriend as in partner correct and i was very um I was very intrigued by that and i wanted to know how it felt To watch, you know, did it not feel bad because it was men and not women? Did it feel worse because of that? And I I spent a lot of time trying to sort of figure that out. And I think for that, not I think, I mean, what they told me time and again was that it was just a job. And I believed that because I saw it. And while that is great and I, you know, applaud the fact that someone's able to separate that, but it wasn't compelling after a couple of chapters of writing about it. And the rest of the Porn Castle was, after a week or two, I was kind of, I would go home and write and I'd be like, I don't know how to make this interesting. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer to basically desire for me and what I found was the passion that lies beneath sex, the emotions that that are beneath it, that the people don't talk about that much, that led Lena, for example, in Indiana to... To drive for this man four hours, this her old high school lover, yes, it was for the sex, but what the sex was making her feel was this kind of rebirth, this reawakening, and she was in love with herself for the first time. And so I think that's how sex differs from desire. With desire, you're kind of, you fall in love with yourself in a way, as opposed to just having this physical feeling that, you know, does not really move much outside of the moment.
2: I want to read a brief excerpt from your introduction about the choice to investigate women's desire versus men's. You write, In some cases, there was prolonged courting. Sometimes the courting was closer to grooming, but mostly the stories ended in the stammering pulses of orgasm. And whereas the man's throttle died in the closing salvo of the orgasm, I found that the woman's was often just beginning." There was complexity and beauty and violence even in the way the women experienced the same event. In these ways and more, it was the female parts of an interlude that, in my eyes, came to stand for the whole of what longing in America looks like. What does longing in America look like?
1: I think it looks like something we still can't talk about. And that's why, what's one of the reasons I thought that I found women more interesting because we've been okay with male desire for centuries. Even if a politician wrecks his whole life over something, we still go, well, you know, it's terrible that he did that, but duh, you know, I mean, that's that, that happens. With women, there's a lot, people including other women, don't want to hear about other women's desire. And I think that One of the things that I noticed so much, specifically towards the end of my reporting, and most of my reporting was done prior to Me Too, but what I noticed in the sort of towards the end, uh, that we've been able to talk very loudly about what we don't want as women, but we're still not talking about what we do want. And I think that if anything, that's only gotten worse as the other side has gotten better, not because one is going up and the other one's going down in concatenation, but because – because of the media, because of social media, the second you say something, if it's not the right thing, it, it's you need to be at one extreme or the other. If you're in the middle, you're not in the club. And what I saw with Desire was that when women want the wrong thing, whether it's the wrong man, the wrong woman, the wrong job, there is an instant, you can't want that. That's not right. And that's why with Lena, with Maggie, with Sloan, each of them wanted something wrong. I mean, not wrong in quotes. Lena wanted a man who was married, who did not love her back. She was going after him. She was dropping off her kids for him. He was not going to ever be there for her. But so what is my point? You know, like, why Why judge her? What I thought was was vital about telling her story was the fact that she was... It was so, so raw, and it was so the need for him, this man. She had been raped as a young woman. She had been completely and bodily abandoned by her husband for about a decade. And this was the first time she was feeling passion, love, like she was inside her own body. She had had endometriosis and fibromyalgia. She was literally losing the pain. And for people to say that that was pathetic, I found
2: to be horrifying. You've been lauded quite a lot for being able to write about these women in a way that was completely non-judgmental. Did you ever have your own judgments as you were witnessing and observing? I mean, it was in some ways almost like ethnographic research, what you were doing. You were living with these women. I never judged them. I'm not a judgmental person
1: That's one of the only strengths I have in terms of (laughs) um, emotional—I judge in my household, I judge my husband, um, but I do not—I judge myself. I I don't judge other people because they're not—it's not my life. You know, for me, it's like the same way that I don't think—men and politicians should not make our choices for our bodies in terms of abortion or not. I think that the same is true of any kind of sexuality, any kind of thing that you want. It's not my place
2: there were a bunch of reasons why I didn't judge, but I didn't. To find subjects for the book, you started with Craigslist. You mm-hmm. crisscrossed the country six times. You went everywhere from the Swingers Club to gas stations where you'd paste flyers up. Mm-hmm. It seems like that had to be an insanely, incredibly frustrating part of the project to find the right subjects. It was the only
1: part. That was impossible. I mean, what was difficult was people who would stop
2: talking to me. Because um, you had about 20 women that were in contention for being in the book, Women right?
1: and men, yeah. I, I had Oh, not, men as well. Yeah, not as many, maybe like five. But yes, so that was difficult. After talking to somebody for six months, in two cases,
2: I had moved into their communities. Did they just ghost you or did they end up saying, sorry, no. Lisa, I don't want to be part of this?
1: Yeah, it was—well, I said to everybody— Before we started talking, like, you know, the only way—it was hard to get people to talk to me, first of all, about desire. Like, I I would say, look, you know, let's talk. At any point, if you want to stop talking, you can just tell me. If at any point you say, I want X, Y, Z stricken from the record, then we'll do that. So a lot of people took me up on that. People are excited to talk about themselves and they'll do it for months on end, you know, and I'll just listen and tape record it and take notes. And they're like, oh, they love hearing their stories. They love the idea that someone's sitting there listening, recording it for, for posterity. But then, you know, it's like, okay, now the idea of like being with your therapist and telling them everything and then your therapist saying, okay, this is going to be in Burns and Noble tomorrow. Cool. So that's, that's <laughs> where I kind of, you know, and I would say, cause I would remind them, I'd be like, this is a book how so, did you
2: survive financially?
1: I was given an advance that was healthy. Um, it was for two years. It was considered a healthy advance for two years. It was not a healthy advance for eight years. You know, I, I lived in an RV for a while. Living in Indiana is inexpensive. Um, you know, so there was. I wasn't living in New York City anymore, which is part of the reason that I could do it. So, From a broad perspective,
2: can you tell us why Lena, Maggie, and Sloan form this compelling trio for you?
1: The main reason that it's those three is because those three gave me the absolute most. I spend the most time with them. They let me spend the most time with them. They were honest. They were willing. Um, so that's the main thing. The other thing is one of the reasons I think that they spoke to me is because they they had some sad, scary, and or highly passionate things going on. And in the end, as a trio, I think what's... What binds them, besides the fact that they gave me so much, is the way that judgment of other women
2: and of other people kind of was so much a part of their lives. The three women are are quite different in their class backgrounds, but they do share some commonalities I, I realized towards the end of the book in one point in all of their lives they were all sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Um did you know about that early on or was that something that took time to reveal? Um you know, Maggie
1: was um Maggie was statutory. Right. Rape. Um Lena I found out about right away. I think it was one of the first or second things that first or second times that we met um after the discussion group that she said that to me. Um Sloan was the last thing I found out about her. And it wasn't it wasn't assault so much as as something a little bit stranger. But, you know, it's it's funny because I've heard a lot of people say that there's assault in all three of them. But there's, you know, I, I just saw it this morning. The study just came out that I think it's like one in three. And it just came out. Is that the one you're talking about? No,
2: I just do so much work with the Joyful Heart oh, Foundation okay. and and, to try, and trying to eradicate sexual assault and domestic okay. violence that it's a stat that I just know by yeah. heart.
1: So that's the thing. It's when People have been like, well, why are they... All? It's like because that's what it is. Right. And I think if you talk to anyone for longer than a week, a month, you'll hear that. I heard that probably 80% of the time. And it, if it's, it doesn't have to be a full-on stranger rape, but it's all different kinds, and it's also all the little kinds that add up. Like, you know, that man in Puerto Rico for me, you can multiply that by 50, and that's what I've had. Uh, I just wrote a story for Playboy about a gynecologist of mine who I long story, but it's it's in Playboy. It's a long... Is it so, in the current issue? It's in the fall issue, yeah. Okay. So um, I was doing a story for Ashley Madison about married men, so I was going on dates with them. I was not sleeping with them. But one of the men that I was talking to, we never met in person. He, we talked on. We moved over to Gmail, and his Gmail was his name. Like the when you hover above the the handle, right. And I was like, "What kind of an idiot who's cheating does that?" <laughs> um, so anyway, I. But but beyond that, the name was the name of my gynecologist. Yeah, is it the
2: same man? Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So
1: yeah, and he was a, he was a bad guy. Not just because of the cheating, which is, you know, its own thing. He was he did a lot of bad things. I stopped seeing him as a gynecologist. But anyway, so that happened. Like a lot of things happened to me. And and so it's not about telling the stories of sexual assault so much as that's that's part of the makeup for what we become and for what we allow and for what we don't allow. As much as passionate things and loving things are. They all it's just a part of the human experience.
2: One of the other commonalities that I felt among the three women was a pervasive sadness. Mm-hmm. They all have a, a very deep sense of almost defeat. Would you say that that's correct?
1: No. I mean Lena's incredibly Lena had Lena was going after this man full throttle. She had a a terrible couple of weeks during it when she was nearly suicidal. The rest of the time, and I still talk to all three of them. The rest of the time, Lena's quite happy. She gets a little things happen that make her sad, but at that point in her life, and that's the thing. The reason that these three were willing to talk as much as they were is because there's pain. You know, right. you wanna um, you wanna talk about that. When when you're totally happy, you don't really need to
2: talk about it and I don't think people are that interested in reading about happy that's people. the thing
1: people are like why don't you have happy marriages I'm like because well first of all I think Sloan's is an incredibly happy marriage there's confusion as there is in any relationship but you know the thing I always say is that her husband tells her every day that she's his fantasy that's a huge thing you're my fantasy like above all be- yes he wants to You know, what she said to me was, hey, you know what, so, yeah, he likes to watch me have sex with other people, but he does a lot for me, and, like, so what, you know? And it makes her feel weird, but if she at any point said, I don't want to do this anymore, he wouldn't leave her
2: or get angry, because part of her likes it, too. I have been, all of a sudden, in the same way that maybe— 24 months ago, we started reading and hearing all about polyamory. Now, I don't know if it's because of your book, but all of a sudden I'm reading all about this whole holding thing, which is when a man likes to watch his wife Mm -hmm. have sex with other men. Mm -hmm. Why is, I mean, from a psychological perspective, do you understand that need? I think yeah,
1: psychologically, I do I understand it cuz I've talked to a few of them. I didn't I was very interested in going into depth with that. I had a couple like that. Um Esther Perel um talks a lot about with women the idea that once you are once you feel safe, you start to feel a little bit bored mm-hmm. sexually and that's true for men too, but for women it's very true is what she's found and what I found too. It's like you you go after safety your whole life and then you get it and you're like what can I do? So with men, it's I think it's more some men are incredibly incredibly jealous and other men that they use that jealousy to fuel their sexuality in a way. So I think that seeing that happen is a way of, one, I think it's, it's like, okay, look, let's say our relationship is at one point, it's immutable that it's going to, one person's going to cheat on the other, which I, I'm not saying that's true, but that's a, that's a feeling that a lot of them said they have. Then at least let me just open it up now. Let me watch the very thing that I fear.
2: Did you find in all of your research and in all of the subjects, any woman that wanted to watch her husband having sex with others?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. There was a lot of that. In fact, in a lot of my readings, it's been interesting because I've had a lot of women who are older come up to me and say, um, I, this is what I've done with my husband. I've, I've wanted to watch him have sex. There's been a lot of women who have said, why don't you talk to me? I'm like, I looked for you. <laughs> I looked for a lot of people. Um, so yes, I did. I actually found more, like I said, after the book came out, people felt more comfortable talking about it.
2: Did anything surprise you about women's desires?
1: Yes, I I was surprised. And perhaps it's because, I mean, saying I'm prudish seems not true, because I, I like, but I am a little bit prudish, not judgmentally prudish, just like, oh, wow. Oh, I didn't. Oh, that's interesting. That kind of like, and I found a lot of people to be a lot more adventurous than I thought that they would be by just kind of looking at them. There's a lot more sex going on at all times like there's like I was just I was shocked at women specifically that I thought were kind of you know stay at home hanging out there was a a mom that was in that was one of my um a friend of a friend and she she was just making out with other guys who weren't her husband and I would never have thought that about her she would go to like bars with her friends or even just a restaurant and like make out with the bartender and I was like really you know and I'm not gonna say her name but like Jennifer (laughs) oh my gosh and it was so so I saw a lot of that
2: a lot of the book is rather steamy Mm -hmm. um Tell us how you regard writing about sex, especially if you feel like you're a prudish. bit more of a prude.
1: Well, I'm not prudish in terms of writing or reading about it. I it's liked. Bold. I liked to. <laughs> um, what I wanted to do with writing about sex, because there's a lot of you know bad sex writing, bums me out. And what I wanted to read and write was to have something that was in between profane and clinical. So I didn't want to use. The word that starts with a C. I don't know what the sort of um, you can say whatever you like. Didn't want to use the word cock, and I didn't want to use the word member. You know, I didn't well, unless the women specifically said them. But in terms of my writing about it, I, I just I just didn't want to use it, and and I wanted to describe as much as possible the sex from a kind of positional angle, from a kind of like the movement of bodies. Unless the when I read like hardcore, like and then this like just like porn when it's hardcore pornography, it's like. It's a little bit this. And, like, softcore porn, at least in my—for me, it's like, oh, there's a story, and it's softer. I don't need, necessarily need to see the National Geographic of it. But when I spoke to Lena, Lena's section is the most graphic. And the reason that it is is because she was the most who just, like, like, everything, would tell me thrust for thrust what was going on immediately afterwards. And there's a, one section that I just copied and pasted from— Facebook, which is where she'd written to me on, because I couldn't do it better than that. And she was so aware, not only of the bodily stuff and remembering every second, the way that you do when you're in passionate thrall to somebody. She remembered every second, but she also wanted it recorded in the world, not in a book, you know, necessarily, but she just wanted to have it said out loud. So she was finding herself in those moments after being raped, after not being touched for a decade. And so, because she was finding herself in these moments, I I felt like each moment was important. And I think that writing about sex specifically is the same way that I would write about anything specifically. Like, if I'm writing about, you know, the way that you make kombucha, I would be very specific about it, because it's interesting to me, the specificity. So, the same thing is true of sex. Like, why not write about sex specifically? We Most of us do it. That's the thing about this country. We have this puritanical hangover and it's fine like I get it I grew up puritanical but in terms of writing about it and maybe it's because my parents have passed away I'm like well whatever we you know I
2: want to do it like this I want to be true to what happened Lisa the book is now going to be coming to Showtime, following a bidding war congratulations Thank you. you're currently set to write and produce it how are you feeling about that
1: both excited and very very nervous. I want to do a good job and um and it's a lot of work and I have a lot of other work to do and this is my priority right now but I also have a novel to edit and a couple of other things going on so and a 4-year-old daughter who is insane. So um So there's
2: a lot. So I'm really excited. It's incredible. Your website alludes to two other works, Animal out in 2020 and Ghost Lover out in 2021. Are those both books?
1: Yeah. Animal is a novel and Ghost Lover is a collection of stories.
2: Lisa, thank you so much for writing such thank an you. illuminating book about female desire. And thank you so much for joining me today Thanks on Design me for Writers. for having
1: I also, can I just say really quick, those questions are like among the best questions ever.
2: Really? Yeah. Oh, good. Thank good. you. Thank really. you. Well, thank you. <laughs> Lisa thank you. Taddeo's remarkable book is called Three Women. You can find out more about Lisa on her website, lisataddeo.com. This is the 15th year. I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank AC Hotels by Marriott and Allbirds for their generous support of this podcast. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, Transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Master's in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The Editor-in-Chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the Art Director is Emily Weiler.